This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Be advised, the following episode contains explicit language and descriptions of disturbing incidents. Had I known I was going to do 10 years and a week in prison, I still wouldn't have snitched because it's just not me. How much would it have reduced your sentence, you think? I might not have gone to jail. At all? At all. I've agreed to keep my guest's identity private. He spent 10 years in federal prison after he struck a plea bargain on drug conspiracy and gun charges. He went from stashing hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash under his bed at home to earning a few dollars a day in prison while managing over $200 million in military contracts. The United States is the incarceration capital of the world. We're home to just 4% of the global population, but nearly 25% of the world's incarcerated. Do Americans commit more crimes than other people? Or are other factors at play? My guest has several ideas. You owned a legitimate business, and one day you agreed to allow a friend to use your warehouse to move drugs. Why did you agree to do that? I was an unloading point. So I was basically like a terminal. At the time, I agreed to do it because I'd gotten divorced, and she got pretty much everything in the house. I had to buy her half of the house. And I was seeing money going out of my personal account and nothing coming in to match it. And the opportunity had been offered to me before to use my warehouse as a terminal to unload tractor trailers with marijuana in it. And I'm like, sure, why not? I, I, I can't remember the first. I think he gave me 60000 bucks the first time. So there's a lot of money. And it's like, hey, if you only do it once or twice or so, you know, that's a pretty good chunk of cash. And that's how it started. The legitimate business None of the employees had any idea what was going on. This was something that just happened on a weekend from time to time, and then it morphed into, you know, two, three, four times a month. But that was over the course of several months. You get arrested February of 2000. Yeah, February 27th of 2000. What happened? I was single. I was 31. So I was just, you know, having the time of my life. I had cash, like... You wouldn't believe it was one of those things where I would look under my bed and see a few hundred thousand dollars worth of cash. And if I wanted to go out clubbing that night, I could do whatever I wanted to do and drop thousand dollar tips. And and so I've been out clubbing all that Saturday night and I got home really early in the morning and I passed out on my couch and I woke up around 6 a.m. and the walls were shaking You know, where I'm from, there's earthquakes, so I thought it was an earthquake. And then it went from sounding like a shaking to sound like something was hitting the house. And so I kind of like raised up off the couch and cracked the blinds and looked out my front window. And there was cops, cars everywhere. And I saw a SWAT team trying to break in my front door, which had a big steel security door that opens out. So I don't know how they thought they were going to bash it in. And then there were pictures falling off the wall and... Pretty rude awakening, and and then next thing I know, there's a bullhorn. And this over the course of two or three minutes, there's someone on a bullhorn. I'm watching this unfold, trying to realize or trying to see if it was even real, you know, because you don't think, you know, I, I don't know, I'd 
party drug back then was ecstasy and we would take mushrooms or acid and it's called candy flipping and you drink a lot of booze and smoke a lot of weed and take some ecstasy and take some acid and sometimes stuff wasn't real (laughs) you know but this started feeling really real and then he's on a bullhorn and he's like we know you're in there you know you've got whatever 30 seconds i can't remember exactly but 60 seconds to open the door or we're coming in and you look out there and they've got shotguns with these huge canisters on them that you know what they are they're tear gas canisters i'm like shit i'm in front of a five by ten window and there's like 30 40 cops in my front yard you look out and you see a SWAT team and it says the county they're from and it's not your county and you know you know a lot of cops in your county and this is starting to feel really like shit could go south really fast i opened my blinds to show that I saw them there and that so that they could get a good view of me. I opened the shade in the dining room and there's someone like right there, like an inch from the window peeking in and he starts screaming at me. He's like, go to the side door, hold your hands where we can see him the whole time. You know, your heart rate rises, you know, your brain is still in a fog because you didn't get much sleep and you're trying to rip rationalize is this real or is it a joke you know so much stuff's going through your mind i had an alarm system and i forgot to shut it off and so i open my side door and i've got another steel security door with a glass pane in it and there's someone right there screaming at me you know lift up your shirt do a circle show us you don't have any weapons you know under your pants pull your pants down so i'm following all these instructions and i'm still inebriated from the night before and everything's just feeling pretty surreal and he's trying to open the storm door but it's a deadbolt key deadbolt on both sides and he's telling me to come out come out and i go to open the door and i realize shit i gotta go get my keys so i'm telling him i gotta go get my keys and right when i started saying that the alarm started going off horns for the alarm there's one in the carport like above his head There's one at the front door above the SWAT team's head. And it's at that point, it's like pandemonium. You can see them all shifting and moving around. And I'm like, I got to go back for my keys. And he's like, don't go back in the house. We're going to shoot. Don't go back in the house. We're going to shoot. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm like, I can't open. I got to get my key. It's a deadbolt. And I went to the crap. My heart rate's rising now. I went to the front living room and I got my keys and I came back and the alarm's going nuts and one saying, hold my hands up. One saying, hold my hands out in front of me. One saying, kneel down. One saying, turn around. They're both saying they're going to shoot me if I don't comply. At that point, I'm freaking out in my brain because I know I'm going to get shot. Like, I really fully understand how minorities feel right now because, not that I'm a minority, but I realize how confusing sometimes these things can be, like no-knock warrants. or That was just a normal search warrant, you know. I was so confused. It's like I was told I was going to get shot. Either way, whatever I did was going to be wrong. I was told I was going to get shot. Finally, I I screamed at him. I'm like, I don't know what to do. You're telling me one thing. You're telling me another thing. I'm holding my hands out in front of me to show I'm not a threat. You know, everyone's heart rate was up. They both realized they're both shouting instructions at me. And one stopped. And the other one kind of like took it down a notch. He goes, come down the steps. 
get on your knees, hold your hands over your head. I came down and put my knees on the ground and then in like a fraction of a second, it was a pig pile. It felt like I was getting tackled. I've got someone's knee on my face and I'm looking underneath my car because it was like inches in front of my face and they picked me up and they put me in a front seat of a cop car and he's like, you got two choices. He goes, you can cooperate right now. He put his hand out. He goes, all these people are going to leave. We're going to go back in the house. We're going to sort this out. He goes, you cannot cooperate and we're going to take you to jail. I'm like, take me to jail. (laughs) You got arrested because someone snitched on you. Yes. What happened? I don't know the full story because they protect their confidential informants, which, for the record, I don't think is right. I know some of who cooperated because as I started seeing little bits and pieces of their evidence, I'm like, ah, I know. But you say evidence was planted in your home. Yes. So the club that I was at. The night before. Yep. There was a kid there that earlier in the night said, he didn't feel good. He was throwing up. Wanted to know if, you know, I could take him home or take him to my house, you know, get him somewhere. So I took him to my house and I just bedded him down. And he had a paper sack with him and it had a bunch of pills and stuff in it. And so that was the investigators or Fed's way of making sure they caught me with something. If they didn't find anything when they came into your home, they would have found that bag. Yes, that was the whole idea. And so being in prison, you start hearing guys, so many guys cooperate and still end up going to prison. And it's in their pre-sentencing investigation, their PSI, that they cooperated. So you can kind of figure out who cooperated and who didn't. And federal sentencing guidelines, mandatory minimums, have really high penalties for things. And so a lot of people just tell, you know, because that's what they told me. They're like, well, you're never going to see your girlfriend again you're never gonna see your mom and dad again you know you're gonna go to prison you're gonna get fucked up in the ass they can tell you whatever they want to tell you you know to to get you to cooperate so a few months after your arrest you pleaded guilty to conspiring to possess 500 grams or more of cocaine 100 kilograms or more of cannabis 30 milligrams or more of rohypnol all with the intent to distribute And you also pled guilty to possessing a firearm during and in relation to a drug trafficking offense. And you paid a high price. But today, companies across the country are profiting mightily from the legal sale of cannabis. What are your thoughts? I don't think that cannabis is a harmful drug to the same extent that I think cocaine, methamphetamines, heroin pills are. I do think that marijuana can be misused. I do think that without some sort of structure or regulation from the government, you know, it's being used to fund criminal activities, cartels, organizations. Along those lines, there's lots of issues there that could be alleviated if United States citizens were allowed to grow marijuana with some regulation. I mean, we have the FDA and we have other regulating bodies that regulate things. But I think that if we cut out the cartel side of things and legalized it all and made sure that the ingredients in the marijuana that we're getting, let me just say that there's no added ingredients to marijuana, then I think that marijuana being manufactured, grown, whatever, I think that's acceptable. But I think that the federal government and even city, state, 
local governments aren't trying to completely eradicate this because it's job security. They they want to get the big guys. A lot of them are dirty, too. I very knowingly broke a law. And so for that, there's punishments associated with it. And I did and should have gone to prison. So as a result of your plea deal, you were sentenced to 138 months in prison, which is an 11.5-year sentence. You served just over 10 years. Nine of 10 federal convictions are the result of plea bargains. And you had told me that the feds played dirty in your case in some ways. How so? I think that they used informants or snitches, if you want to call them that, in ways to help. And I don't want to say set me up, but help manufacture scenarios that they could use to gather evidence on me. In one case, the kid that left the bag of drugs in my house. When I got back from the club, he had left. So, you know, I'm like, oh, he probably got better and he left. But that was a way for them to make sure that they had me, you know. And then the other way that they play dirty is the lead investigator that was on my case was over the gang task force in my town. This investigator drove me from the city jail to the county jail, and she was trying to convince me along the way that I should cooperate. And so she walked me into the county jail, and she said something about, you know, tell me about the guns. You know, she's like trying to get me to talk, and I wasn't going to talk to her. You know, I'm like, what guns? She goes, oh, you know, we found the shotgun, I had pistol. I mean, everyone has guns where I'm from. And I don't remember what I said to her, but it's not what she said I said. So in the package that they put together that outlines the case, they explain why you got charged with certain things. And I got charged with that 924C, which is possession of a firearm during in relation to a drug trafficking crime, because she said that I made the statement to her that the guns weren't for you. The guns were to shoot other drug dealers that might want the drugs. We know that plea bargains lighten caseloads and produce more convictions for prosecutors. What were your reasons for agreeing to a plea deal? So my lawyer told me that the feds have a 90-something percent conviction rate, and they offer you a lesser sentence if you don't have to go to trial. And I knew that despite the fact that there were no huge quantities of drugs found in my case, that it was based on the statements made by informants that I was going to go to jail for a long time. They also gave you the possibility of being an informant yourself. Yes. You turned that down. Why did you turn that down? I want to say a sense of loyalty to myself, because that's not how I was raised. You don't snitch on people. But also because... There's that sense that you don't want your friends to go through what you're just getting ready to go through. You know, especially if they've got kids or they've got wives, you know, you're thinking, crap, if I snitch people out, everyone's going to be, you know, it's just me. It's just one person. What's the worst they could do to me? I I still wouldn't have snitched after the fact. Like, had I known I was going to do 10 years and a week in prison, I still wouldn't have snitched because it's just not me. But How much would it have reduced your sentence, you think? I might not have gone to jail. At all? At all. Oh, wow. 
because they were following the vein, I guess you could say, or the trail of drugs from Mexico to my state. And I lived on what they would call the drug corridor. And it was massive amounts of drugs coming. And they wanted to cut that vein right there and let it bleed out and try to get everyone up the line that they could and down the line that they could. So they were looking, in my opinion, not so much as to stop the flow of drugs, but to make that big bust because that's a ego boost. It's something that they can brag about and they have their own incentives for making these big busts that go beyond the good of the community. So I know it varies by state, but what rights have you lost as a result of your federal conviction? I can't vote. There's some countries I can't go to. Ironically, I cannot go to Australia, which originally became a penal colony for Britain, for England. So I don't know why they wouldn't want me there. (laughs) I can't go to Canada. The other thing that it does is there is a stigma associated with it. It doesn't bother me. Most everyone I know well knows that I was in prison. But there is that little bit of a dark cloud hanging over your past. And when it's a long sentence... You know, if I say I was in prison or they see the tattoos I have, which I, ironically, I never got any of them in prison. They're like, oh, wow, you've been to prison? I'm like, oh, yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, where? Where'd you go? And, you know, you start telling them a little bit and they're like, holy shit, 10 years, who'd you kill? You are like, no, it's drugs. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. Or they think 10 years, you know, would you molest a bunch of kids? Then the other thing is, is that for a few years while I was on probation slash parole i was on that for four years if i got pulled over something on the database that said call his probation officer one of his charges is weapons another is drugs so they automatically think oh you know you just got out of prison well you know i have to tell your probation officer do you have any drugs or guns in the car do you mind if we look and that doesn't make a difference if you're driving with your friends yourself your mom yeah at the time my stepkids Most officers were really respectful. They would say, do you mind getting out of the car? I want to ask you a couple of questions, and I don't want to, you know, make your family feel uncomfortable. And so I was so glad when I was off probation. I'm like, oh, thank God I can get pulled over without going through this. And it didn't stop. So for a few years after that, if I got pulled over, if they were in the cop car for more than like five minutes writing a ticket, I'm like, oh, shit. Back to going to prison, how did your family take the news? I was raised in a really religious household. When I left my house, I stopped being religious. I didn't tell them I drank, I partied, I smoked. So I was divorced, and I had no kids. I had, for family, a brother, a mom and dad, and two grandmothers. That's basically all the family I had. And I wasn't close with my brother. And my parents' relationship with me was strained because they were very religious and I was not. And so they lived a few hundred miles away and I didn't see them all that often, maybe once a year. So for them, it was a surprise because they knew me as owning a few successful businesses and making money legally. And while they knew I had tattoos and they knew I drank, they didn't know I partied, they didn't know anything. So... My ex-wife called my dad's old secretary because she didn't have his information. She knew my dad's old secretary's name and said, 
tell his parents that he's in jail. I got a letter from my dad within a few days of being in. And he said, hey, we heard, you know, is there any way we can contact you? And so I called him from county jail, which you pick up the phone, you dial the phone number, and you hear the message that they hear. Hi, you know, this is from such and such jail, from such and such inmate, and they would like to speak to you. Press one to accept, press two to deny. And I hit one, and it was my dad. And we had a pretty strained conversation, and he was more concerned about me than, you know, in my safety than he was, you know, what did you do to get there? And I want to say it was three months later that they were able to come for a visit, but they couldn't come during normal visitation time, so they had to make arrangements with the sheriff to see me. And that county jail was what they would consider a high-security facility, and they had given me a $2 million bond and put me in this higher security facility because I was valuable to the cartel that I was taking deliveries for. And what they were afraid of is that the local district attorney's office or federal district attorney's office felt that I was an asset to that cartel and that I should be kept in the innermost part of the jail under really strict conditions in case they wanted to try and bust me out or in case they want to try to eliminate me because as that world goes the loyalty only works one way that cartel's not loyal to you they're loyal to their self they're loyal to their money-making machine and so If they think that you can roll over and bust people all the way up the chain and all the way down the chain, they just kill you. You're not worth nothing to them. But I was in there so long that they knew at that point that I wasn't a harm to them. Uh, Eventually they figured that out, yeah. Pretty quickly, because I was the only one that got arrested. Were you scared when you got to prison? Oddly enough, I went into county jail a celebrity because... All the buzz went around about this huge kingpin drug dealer got busted. and Oh, they thought you were the kingpin? The guys on the inside the thought you were? The guys on the were. inside. So I was like respected the second I walked in there by most of the guys in there because they thought that I Don't was fuck a, with this guy. Don't fuck with this guy. But they saw me as someone that they aspired to be. One time... I was scared. It was between lockup and going into general population. So they take you from lockup. They bring you up to your pod, which is your cell block. My cell block had seven cells. It was L-shaped. There was three cells down one side and four down the other. And they buzz you into this big room with, with metal picnic tables. And as soon as they buzz you in, faces come to the windows in the cell block doors because they want to see who's coming in. No one knew me. I was just an unknown guy, and I was in there with mostly drug dealers and some guys that were late on child support. And so I buzz in. I've got my mattress. I got my orange prison or jail jumpsuit on, and it was a 14-man cell block, but they were overcrowded, so there was three guys in each cell. And so I walked into a cell block with 20 guys, 
and there were 20 faces at the window, and they're all going, hey, hey, what's your name? What's your name? What you in here for, man? Million people asking you questions at one time, and it's all the same question. Hey, what's your name? What are you in here for? What are you doing? And then it was like, hey, white guy. Hey, white guy. And it was me, a Mexican guy, and 19 black guys. And I didn't say anything to anyone. So I go into my cell block. I introduce myself to the two guys there. They were looking at me skeptically because they didn't know why I was in there. And they didn't really talk to me much. We said our names. And it was a two-man cell block, and they each had one of the bunks. And I had to sleep on the floor. So they showed me where to put my mattress, which was right in front of the toilet. And I'm still hearing, hey, hey, new guy. Hey, Whitey. You know, hey, what are you in there for? Oh, he looks like a child molester. And then they start like... uh saying things like, man, I hope you got a cute ass. You know, like, it's an intimidation game. They just do that to try to throw you off. See what kind of guy you are. See what you're made of. And so it went on for a few minutes. And I came to the door, and I kind of looked. And the cell block itself is dark. There's lights on in the cells because they never shut those off. And you can see backlit faces. So you can't see expressions you can't see features that you could recognize the scary part was when they started making threats like hey white are you going to tell us your name or we're going to have to go in there and pound it out of you and then they started saying hey when the doors pop get whitey because in the morning they pop the doors you know so i looked at the two old guys and they ain't gonna help me you know and so one of them said you need to do something about that he goes when the door pops we're pushing out there they're like, and we're shutting the door. They're like, we don't want any part of this. And so after a few more minutes of it, I came to the door. I'm like, fuck you. I ain't telling you my name. Fuck you. You want Whitey? Come get Whitey. You know, when the doors pop, come get Whitey. And so I started turning around. I had, they give you pr- shower shoes, what they call them. They're the cheapest, shittiest flip-flops in the world. <laughs> they put, they put blisters on you when you look at them you know they're just sharp edges so i was turning around i was kicking the door i'm banging on there i'm like get whitey get fucking whitey whitey just fucking has nothing better to do and he's fucking pissed off because he just killed his whole fucking family you know what what's a few more people come fucking get whitey and i and i'd bang on the door like and then i'd say get whitey get whitey whitey wants you i was pissed i didn't give a shit anymore you know it's like if it's gonna happen it's gonna happen it got quiet like, really quiet, and they're like... Then they knew what you were made of. Yeah, so then they were doing the whole Waltons thing. Good night, Jim, Bob, you know, <laughs> trying to be funny, you know, to each other, you know. So eventually you struck the plea deal, you get to federal prison. When you arrive and you see your cell, what's that like, like, visually? So when you first get to prison, your cell is the same as when you first got to county lockup. Six by nine, concrete walls two bunks on the left side, a two-door locker in front of the bunks, what they call the hutch, which was like a desk with an area to put books and a light and an area to hang some clothes, and then across from the beds, and then there was a locker next to that. Did you have a toilet and sink inside that cell? Yes. So two guys. Two guys. What was the other guy in for who you spent most of your time with? Well... I had some of a longer sentence, 
And because my sentence wasn't a violent crime, I was in there with guys that weren't violent either. And so they were rolling in and out of there. So I had probably over 10 years in the prison I was in. I probably had 11 or 12 cellies. And so the longest cellie I had was probably the last one. I left him there. He was there with me for two and a half years. He was in there for methamphetamine manufacturing. My first cellie was Bud. And Bud was a 70-something-year-old aged-out crop duster that was in there for flying a commercial airplane full of marijuana from Mexico into the United States. And when he saw he was going to land that there were cop cars everywhere, he tried to go past the runway and land in a field and flipped it upside down and got arrested. That was my first Sally. And he was a character. How long did it take you to wrap your mind around the fact that you were going to be in federal prison for a long time? Ten years and a week. (laughs) You never got used to it. Never. The realization never hits you that you're going to do the whole sentence. So when, before I went into the sentencing phase, my lawyer, who was crappy, said, yeah, you'll probably end up doing two and a half years. So I think is how she put it. I don't really remember how it went. But well, it didn't pan out that way. didn't pan out that way. No, in fact, when we went to sentencing, I'm standing there next to her as the judge is reading off the charges and what each sentence carries. And he said, I have no choice but to sentence you to 11 and a half years. My hands are tied by the mandatory minimum guidelines. You had tremendous community support. I'd like to read some of the letters. And he read off letters from people that I'd known for years and customers and friends and family. My dad said, I know he did the crime and I know he has to do time, but I ask you to be lenient on him. And he read all these, and he's like, I just don't have any choice, but I have since 11 and a half years. And I look at my lawyer, I'm like, he says 11 and a half years. I'm like, what happened to two and a half? She's like, shh, you can't say nothing. I'm like, oh, no, no. I want to say something. That's a lot of time. And she's like, you can't say anything. She goes, you can do an appeal. And it didn't hit me at that point that I was going to do that much time. I'm like, there's a mistake. Where's, what about drug program? What about this? What about that? And so she, She put her hand on mine and said, shh, just be quiet. And they finished the sentencing process. They carried me down to the bottom of the courthouse. They put me in a cell. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, I've got to call my dad and tell him I got an 11 half year sentence. Because he said that I told him, don't worry about coming down here. I'll be out in a couple, two, three years. It's all good. And when I got to county jail, I got put in a cell block and I went to the phone and I called dad and I told him and he was upset. He's like, I don't understand. And then someone said, Hey, you want to play some black, uh, some spades? And I'm like, sure. So I got with a cup, three other guys and we started playing spades and my partner and I got in an argument and that was the first fight I got into. He was mad at me cause I didn't play the card. He thought I was supposed to, and everything was overwhelming, and I'm like, fuck you, and he's like, fuck you, and next thing you know, we are got each other by the throat, and we're fighting, and I think that's probably when the realization hit me. I was going to do a shit ton of time, because I took it out on that guy. <laughs> What's the average day like? You ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? 
Yes. Yeah, it's like that. It's like the best thing to do is get into a routine. You get up, you make your bed, you go to the walking track, you go to breakfast, you come back, you do your first cell inspection when they walk through and check everything. You're always assigned a job. You go do your little job. You eat lunch. You go back to your little job. You come back for count. You take a shower. You go hit the walking track or the weight pile. You talk to the people you know. You get in your card game. You go in arts and crafts room. You go to the band room. And then you go to bed and then you get up and you do it again the next morning. My day wasn't the typical day once I got settled in because I got really active into the education department and English is a second language for some of the Mexican or Spanish speaking people in there and teaching math and teaching classes for the education department, which at the time I felt frustrated because I was feeding the machine. They were just using my numbers to boost their budget. But I felt good because I taught small business management classes and how to write business plans and I made it fun and exciting for me and the guys around me. And at one point, it was like, it's not really prison if I'm doing things I would have done on the outside. You sleep on the outside. So if you sleep eight hours, you're only in prison 16 hours that day. And if you spend three hours of it eating and preparing food, you're only in prison 13 hours that day. Well, that's what you tell yourself. It is. And that helps you get through. That helps you get through. And if you're doing things like... You're hanging out with friends and you're doing fun stuff. That's not, it's all, you're always in prison because you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. But for most people, it's the movie Groundhog Day with a lot of depression thrown in. What was the typical breakfast, lunch, dinner? So where I was at, we had rice every morning for breakfast with uh, milk and cinnamon and sugar in it. Or you had oatmeal or you had cereal to choose from. Occasionally, there was bacon and eggs or sausage or moldy bread or shit on a shingle. (laughs) Or they had biscuits and gravy, which, you know, I wouldn't feed that to a dog. But it was just a variety of different things. Nothing mom made. What do you think about humanity? Are you more jaded? Are you more compassionate? I'm more compassionate, but I'm a lot more cautious because I spent 10 years with some truly horrible people, but that was a small segment of that prison population. Most of them were normal, what I would call normal people. They were dads, they were uncles, they were grandfathers, they were business owners, they were next-door neighbors. They did something illegal. For the most part, where I was at, there weren't. There weren't what I would consider bad or dangerous criminals. Not that there's anything okay with making or selling meth or making or selling heroin. There's more people that aren't locked up for doing that than there are locked up for doing that. And so... Those guys just got caught. Those guys just got caught. Not saying they did anything right and they shouldn't have been caught. But that's... You're just around normal people. And when you realize that I've never been prejudiced, but the thing that struck me is when you're living with a bunch of other races, you start seeing everyone's the same. They all bleed the same. They've got mamas. They all have got feelings. They've all got 
the same makeup you have. At the same time, you learn a lot about male psychology if you're locked up with guys and you start seeing patterns. You know, there's only so many different types of people. I used to say it's the same game, different name. And so when you get out, you start looking at people, you start classifying them the same way that you classified them in prison. Is this just a normal guy or is this a guy that could be a potential threat? Just say your next door neighbor was a child molester, for instance. How often do you see your next door neighbor? I don't know. You just, once a week, the once average a month. person. Yeah, you see him walking out to the car. It depends on how close you live. You might see him at the grocery store. You don't really learn that person, but when he's in the cell across from you, or you or you see him at the table next to you, or you see him walking, you see him. You start building like this profile of what a person like that looks like, and then you start recognizing that same type of person when you get out. So. I use child molesters, for example, it's the most detested person in there, but, you know, someone that's full of drama inside, someone outside that's full of drama acts the same way, and you just start learning the type of people that you can either identify with or that you can associate with safely inside. You also you keep doing the same thing when you get out. I mean, it changes how you look at people. Fundamentally, it changes how you look at people. And it takes a few years to get that out of you. Because I don't think about prison very often anymore. I've been out for uh, 11 years. You know, it's not... After 10 years in prison, you're an inmate, even when you get out. It takes a while to be free again. Just like when you go into prison, you're not used to that. You're... Right. I would dream... I'd fall asleep with shitty mattresses. I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up at like 2 o'clock and I'm like, Oh, damn, I'd fall asleep in my recliner. And, you know, you're no. like, you start feeling right, like I say, my fucking recliner. This is. I wish I'm I could sleep in my recliner. Yeah. Or, or another funny one is, is I say funny. It's smells, textures, things kind of trigger things. I remember. So I'm standing at the sink, and I'm shaving, and you daydream a lot, and I'm standing there shaving, and I started smelling foundation. You know the makeup, <clears throat> and. My wife and I used to, my bathroom had two sinks. So in the morning, she'd be at one sink and I'd be at the other, you know, and she'd be putting her makeup on. You smell that. I felt like I was at home. And I look over and it's not my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Guy put makeup on, you know. Brought you back to reality. Yeah, I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Tell me some of the stories of the uh, other guys you were with. I remember you'd said that during in-processing, you had seen other guys come in and they just, didn't handle it well. If they had someone white collar coming in for whatever white collar crimes, they would call me up to the visitation room to meet the guy and help introduce him into the general population so that he had a smoother transition. Not for his benefit, but for their benefit. They're like, we don't want to clean up any blood. We don't have to lock anyone up. And so after he went through the intake process... And was ready to be released in the general population. They would page me to the visitation room. I would walk through the shakedown bathroom. And the guard there would frisk me and make sure I didn't have anything on me. And then I would go out. I would sit down. I would talk to this new guy coming in. And I would prepare him for what he was going to see when he went in. So that his entry into the prison would be successful for him. My goal was to help him. The prison's goal is to keep there from being any trouble for them. And so he was in his 60s. 
he had owned a lot of successful strip clubs in another state, and they got him for some sort of interstate commerce, and he was locked up in my state, and he had been taking human growth hormones and steroids while he was out there, and he was a player. You know, he was one of those guys who was in his 60s, and he dyed his hair, and he looked all muscled up and bragged about his 20-year-old girlfriends, and he had a six-pack, and his biggest fear was, is if I don't keep taking these human growth hormones and steroids, I'm going to lose all my muscle. Can you smuggle something in for me? He didn't want to lose his image. Unicor is a government corporation established by Congress, which operates at no cost to taxpayers. You worked for them while in federal prison. Describe that work. There's a couple of ways to get money on your books. One is have your family send it. Another way is to work for it in the prison, which you just make pennies on the dollar. You make like 17 bucks a month. Is that what you were making? Working in the prison as an orderly or whatever, yes. But the offer for federal prison industries, Unicor, they can't. They can make you work while you're in prison, cleaning bathrooms, working in the cafeteria. They can't make you work at Unicor. Unicor is an option. So... And if they made you work at Unicor, it'd be slave labor. It'd be illegal. So they offer you the option of Unicor, which starts out, I think, then start out at 17 cents an hour or 13 cents an hour. And you go there and you work for seven hours a day. And it's just a normal, except for prison guards there and the fact that you're making nothing, really. It's just like a regular job. So you go there and you work. And then at the end of the month, you get paid. And so you get paid a significant amount more working for Unicor than you do working just in the prison. We don't have license plate factories. What were you paid on a hourly or monthly basis? I think I think by the time I left I was up to two twenty five or two forty an hour. And what did you start at, your pay rate? I thought it was seventeen cents or thirteen cents an hour. Really low. This division of Unicor had a factory that made wiring harnesses. And the factory made the wiring harnesses, and I was in the warehouse where they packaged and shipped them out. So they made wiring harnesses for military training planes, and they made wiring harnesses and upfitter kits for Humvees so that they could install a radio that would allow someone in a Humvee to talk to someone in a plane without having to go between. Communication devices? Yes. So it was a military contract? That was all military contracts there with the Navy. I was in charge of the shipping department, so I was the lead shipping clerk, and I also managed the contracts for that Unicor. I think it was $225 million of military contracts that I managed, and I had a business background, which is why they wanted me to work for them, because the average inmate that went to work there was usually low-level drug dealers. And if someone white-collar came in, lots of times they either had no desire to work at Unicor or didn't need the money. And so if someone came in with business experience, organizational skills, people skills, they would try to attract that person to work at Unicor. So within like three months, I went from just putting boxes together to managing $225 million in contracts and talking to the trucking companies to arrange trucking and getting shipping prices and talking to the various uh, bases that all the boxes were going to. And I found myself running a massive company for 
less than a buck an hour. What do you think of that? You're paid so little, not even minimum wage. I liked the feeling of normalcy that I was doing something that I would have done on the outside. Like I said earlier, where if you do things that you would have done on the outside anyway, then you're technically not incarcerated. Yeah, you can tell yourself that. Yes. It doesn't feel like you're in it federal prison. It doesn't feel prison. like you're in federal prison. And so a good week of work could be $115, $25, $30. Or if I worked a lot of overtime, it could be $150, $175. You know, five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar check at the end of the month, you're sitting in prison. There's a commissary. There's only one place to spend money. If you want to eat off the commissary, you can, depending on what you eat, 10, 15 bucks a day. I mean, it's hard to spend the amount of money that I made at Unicor. So so that was more than enough for you. It was more than enough. What were you required to pay for yourself while you were in prison? Every prison's different in states, but in federal, everything is the same in every federal prison. When you walk in the door, they're going to give you flip-flops, steel-toe boots, and either green or tan dickies, button-up shirt, work pants. They'll give you shower shoes, three pairs of socks, three pairs of underwear, and three t-shirts. They don't give you a toothbrush. They don't give you toothpaste. They don't give you soap. They don't give you deodorant. That's all you get, and you get three meals a day, and you get a place to sleep. And if you want anything other than that, you have to pay for it yourself. Like phone calls? Like phone calls, commissary. If you want tennis shoes, you have to buy those off the commissary. And one of the things I did is I helped an inmate organized welcome basket, I guess you could say. So when a a new guy comes in, we would pool our money and we would buy soap. We would buy laundry detergent. We would buy the things that a guy wants when he comes in. I'd put five stamps in the bag. I'd put five envelopes to buy all that. They don't just give it to you. And so when they came in, you'd give them a bag, like 15 or 20, a couple of ramen noodle soups in there, you know, 15 or $20 worth of stuff to kind of get them started in there you don't need to buy anything when you get in there but if you want to walk the walking track you want you don't want to do it in cheap plastic coated steel toe (laughs) boots with crappy socks and boxer shorts that had probably been worn by 20 other guys ahead of you and you spend your commissary money on things that make your life more comfortable did you ever dream of escaping oh yeah did you ever plot anything no because what are you going to do? I'm not going to run to Mexico. If I wanted to live in Mexico, I would have moved there before. Canada didn't want you. It's not worth running. What did you learn about yourself? Are you a better guy today? I think I am 100%. I definitely learned to identify things that I needed to change in myself. And I became more compassionate. And I became more understanding. And I started looking at myself differently i was very hard on myself before i went in i was very driven and i backed off of some of that and i used to think that some of my anxieties or fears or personality issues were just unique to myself and i saw myself and a bunch of other people there and it just can do one of two things prison can sour you or it can change you for the good The sooner you accept the fact that you're just going to do this time because you did something 
to get there, the easier it is. You're like, oh, and you got an out date too. You're like, all right, you know, hey, on such and such date, I get out. On such and such date, I get off of probation. I'll put it behind me and I'll move forward. I'll just get this done. I'll get my bit done is what they say. What big life events did you miss while you were in prison? My brother's wedding. Both my grandparents passing away. Both my grandmothers passing away because that's all I had left when I went in. My parents' 35th wedding anniversary, their 40th wedding anniversary. I missed seeing all my friends' kids grow up. I missed... People that passed away, one of my best friend's father, who is almost like a father to me, he passed away while I was in. The funny thing is, I missed all the advancements in technology. When I went in, I had gotten one of the first flip phones that was small enough to go in your pocket easily, which was called a Motorola Droid. It was analog. So 9-11 happened while I was in. And so before I went in, when I flew, you just went to the airport (laughs) You know, got on a plane. He didn't go through all this crazy security. And so they dropped me off at the airport. I go straight from prison to a prison van to dropped off at the airport around free people. And I wasn't supposed to, but I got word to someone that I did time with that I was going to be at the airport on such and such day. And he met me there and he bought me something, my first free meal. And he had gotten out like five years before me and we just stayed friends and he was in there for some white-collar stuff, and older guy, really nice. So the U.S. is the incarceration capital of the world. One in seven prisoners has a life sentence here, and the U.S. houses 22% of the world's incarcerated. Yet we only represent 4% of the world's population. That's six times the rate of Canada. Are we to believe that our people are inherently more criminal, or is something else at play it's a business it's not about rehabilitating people it's not about keeping the streets safe it's about making money that's my opinion on it i you know when you were reading all those statistics off to me the first thing i was thinking is wow it's really working they're really making money off of this that's what i think i mean it costs money taxpayers pay for people to be in prison but the contractors that build the prisons make money Not that they're greasing the palms of politicians to do it, but a lot of prisons are in economically depressed areas where land is cheap. And if your governor or your state rep or something helps ease the transition of a prison into your community, they're probably going to get reelected. So there's incentive there for them to have prisons in their area. The prison guards make money off of it. Whoever delivers food to the prisons make money. The Cisco trucks were at our prison two, three times a week. How much money is Cisco making off of, you know, the local prison? In the end, it's an enterprise, and it's not a, it's not a system to try to rehabilitate people. And are we safer because of that? I don't think we are. You've been on the inside, so looking now from the outside in, what should we be doing different? Well, let me just say, I don't have any problems with authority or police. I'm so glad we have a police department. I'm so glad we have some sort of enforcement agencies to keep us safe. I think there needs to be a lot of instruction on that end, and maybe even some more 
psychological profiling so that the people that we're putting into place to do this are here to protect and serve. What I hated seeing is a kid, and I'm going to say a kid is anyone late teens to mid-twenties coming in for a low-level drug offense that could have been rehabilitated on the outside, yet instead he comes in and he learns his craft even better and learns more things that he could do illegal. He's taken away from his support network, the whatever good support network he might have had. He's taken away from that. Now he's got a stigma associated with him that he's an ex-con. What do you expect him to do when he gets out? Locking people up is a business. It's not done to rehabilitate. And rehabilitation can start on the street, not in prison. You tend to go backwards once you get into prison. Probably 95% of the people that are locked up are human. There's monsters there, definitely, for sure. A lot of people that are locked up in prison have mental and emotional issues. They're and not, there's not a lot of help for them on the inside. And there's zero help for them. You are mocked by the prison staff. I remember two instances that I can remember. There's a lot more than two. There was a guy that came in, and they put him right in my cell. He smelled like three-day-old booze. He was an alcoholic. And not only was he an alcoholic, but he was on Xanax or some antidepressant. And he had been an alcoholic and on that antidepressant for years. And they just tossed him in prison, or tossed him in county jail, excuse me. They tossed him in county jail with nothing, no help for his addiction. And he detoxed in the cell, like right in front of me. It's the worst thing I've ever seen to watch someone detox. I'm trying to get him help, and the guards are laughing at him. You know, and they're making fun of them, and they're mocking them, and they're, if you needed to speak to the control pod, you would press a button by the door. And so I remember, I'm watching him, he gets up and he presses a button, he goes, hey, someone says, yeah, can I help you? He goes, yeah, I'm done, I'm ready to go home. (laughs) I'm done, it's over with, it's not funny anymore, take me home. He was dead serious. He was detoxing, he wasn't in his right mind. And they just threw him in the, oh, he's in there for child support, lack of paying child support. So they put him upstairs in what we call the hole, which is solitary confinement. And he was in there for a week or so going crazy. I mean, he was directly above us. We could hear him, you know, screaming. You know, there's nothing there to help him get off of that. And the reason he wasn't paying child support is because he is hooked on prescription antidepressants and he is an alcoholic. Is he going to start paying his child support because he's in jail? (laughs) No. You know, help him get through rehab. I'm not saying everyone can be rehabilitated, but help him get off drugs and help him get off alcohol and help him get a job. And because it's just costing us money to keep him in jail. It's a hell of a lot cheaper to keep someone out and offer programs to help him or make him go through a program somehow. And so the other thing that happened is... There was a guy that was brought in to the county jail at the same time I was. You could tell he didn't look normal. He had a big square head. He looked, he was hunchback. And they put him across from me in an observation room. And he started having a meltdown, like a psychotic thing. He started ramming his head against the wall. So they put him in what they called the drunk tank or observation tank. 
and it had a humongous window, which I could see about half of from my cell window. And they put the, it has its own air conditioning unit. And so they drop the temperature like to 55. They take anything that you could possibly use to harm yourself. And they put him in one of the button up things they give you in the doctor's office that buttons up the backing tie a little string around your waist. And he took the string and was trying to hang himself. So they took that away from him. They called the SORT team, which is a special operations response team, which is just a bunch of muscled up guys with shields, and they love going in these cells. And so they had like six, seven, eight guys all dressed up in black with combat fatigues and boots and shields and pepper spray and gas masks on, and they went in there and they bum-rushed them and they gassed him, and they put him in... Oh, they asked him to take his gown off first, and he wouldn't do it, so they called the Special Operations Response Team, and they went in there, and they bum-rushed him. I saw all that part of it. when they, From the time they went in the door, they slammed him up against the wall. They cut the fabric gown they was wearing off of him, and they put a paper gown on him, and they handcuffed his hands behind his back, and they pushed him down on the mattress, and they walked out. This guy's mentally ill. He's not even consciously aware that what he's doing isn't right. He was talking about his monkey he had at home. Like, he was afraid he's going to lose his girlfriend, and he just bought her a monkey. So he was trying to get his face in the toilet because there was a little bit of water in there. He's trying to get his face in there to, like, wash the pepper spray off. And he was crying, and snot was coming out of his face, and he would put his face up against the window and you could just see the snot and the tears coming out of his face and then he started bashing his head against the wall and bashing against the window and there was blood on his head and they came in with a football helmet and the football helmet was too small for his head and they were kicking the football helmet on his head so here's a mentally ill guy in jail never was on meds i think some of the backstory was was that his family had tried to get him help and he wouldn't do it and he had lived in his car, he had lived in the woods, and they're kicking a football helmet on a handcuffed guy that's had pepper spray sprayed on him, and he's banging his head against the wall trying to kill himself. We're a penal system. We're not a correctional system. We penalize. We don't correct. We're not doing anything to help people. And when I was in prison... I was taking part in all these education programs to help other people, and I felt like what I was doing was beneficial, but the education department that I worked for, they're like, man, you're putting too much effort into this. You know, just, we don't even care if they do the class as long as they sign the sheet that we can submit to get the grant money that we need to keep the education department going. I understand that there's bad people that'll never be rehabilitated, there's people that doesn't make a difference what you do, you'll never help them. But shit, there's a lot of people there that can be helped. You know, that prison just made them worse. It gave them mental issues. Well, the bottom line is most of those people are eventually going to get out anyway. Most of them will. And, you know, one of my. Yeah, one of my cellies that was early on was a young kid. I kept up with them. I mean, you weren't supposed to. You just you had ways of doing it. You know, you wrote their parents or you wrote their girlfriend or whatever. And his name was Lenny. He, I think he was in there with me for a little over a year. He worked at a bank. He did some funny stuff as a bank teller manager. And he, I think he was like, he only got like 
two years, which is a lot of time. They come in a criminal that made a mistake and they leave insane. Sometimes, you know, there's too much time or there's no help or they just got needled to death. And even visitation, which you're entitled to, your incarceration is your punishment. Not all the things that they can do to you while you're there. That's not your punishment. Your punishment is being incarcerated. So you're entitled to visitation and you're entitled to mail. They were so arbitrary there. You know, if they didn't like something you did, they would squeeze you out or they would make your visitation more difficult or they would pat your 60-something-year-old mother down like she's smuggling drugs into you or they would... Or you're incarcerated so far away you can't see your family, which in the case, the state prison I was in for a few months, it held Hawaiian state prisoners, and it was in a southern state. Those guys didn't get to see their family. Like, they were Samoans, too, I think, or a lot of them were Samoans. They rioted. There was someone in the mailroom that didn't like, I, I think... Their native language wasn't always English, or there was. But their rights weren't being upheld. Their rights weren't or being upheld. It was arbitrary. Yeah, they would get a letter, and it wouldn't be in English, and there would be no one in the mailroom that could translate their letter, so they just wouldn't give them their letters. So they're waiting on a letter from their kid, or their wife, or their mom, or their dad. They're not getting it. It's just a bunch of games in there. And so, like I said, there were a lot of good correctional officers, or a lot of really bad ones. There were a lot of people that, you know, seemed to want to exact some sort of vengeance of their own sense of justice because they work there instead of letting the time be the punishment. And it sours people. It makes them get out resentful of authority, and it makes them get out frustrated that they gave up so much of their life. Or like you said earlier, you know, they went and they did four or five years in state prison for marijuana conviction, and they get out three years after it's legal. And they're like, huh. You know, wow, I'm sitting in prison and they're, the state's sanctioning it to be sold out here. And they're making money off of it. They're making tax money off of it. I mean, <laughs> find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. Could you do me a favor? You can help my podcast grow by rating and reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.